Welcome to Insight Studios Podcast, The Birth Narrative of Jesus Christ, Part 2, Matthew Chapter 2, Verses 1 through 15. Your presenter today is Pastor Kimberly Orr. All right, I have 10 o'clock. I want to be good with your time. And so let's begin. Let us pray. Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you, thank you, and praise you for being our living Lord, for bringing us in this season of the new year. Lord, may we taste and see that you, O oh Lord, are good. Thank you for the creation of the world. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our living word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for enlivening your word for us. And so, Lord, right now we just decree and declare wisdom, understanding, purpose in as we study today. Lord, we just ask that you would forgive us for our sins. Help us to be quick to forgive others. Help us not to yield to the temptation to say that Bible study is too hard or that, um, I, I, you know, there's just so much here and I can't, I can't get it. But Holy Spirit, you help us. So, Lord, help us to resist that temptation. And, Lord, to not listen to the whispering wiles of the evil one in Jesus' name. For you are our living word, our king, our new life. And we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So today we are continuing the birth narrative of Jesus. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15 only today. Uh, keep your map and your notes handy. So what I'd like to do is uh, read through Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. We'll divide that up. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written in the prophet Micah, And you, uh, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler." who will shepherd my people Israel, if someone would pick up from there. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may too may go and worship him. When they had heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till they came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On the coming and coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of mercy. And having been warned in a dream, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another robber. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called myself. All right. So this is the beginning of the story that Matthew records. Now, how do these, how does this story do you think link up with all that we've learned so far? Think about the genealogy and the purposes of the genealogy in Matthew, with it being the royal line. It ends with Joseph and then moves, you know, and his book ended by Jesus. He's the most important figure, right? Uh, and then we moved into the godly examples of Mary and Joseph. So how does how do we pick up now uh, with this Matthew narrative associated with the miraculous birth of Jesus? What are some common themes that you see? Well, I see that God still speaks to Joseph and dreams. Yes, Joseph is still a dreamer, just like his namesake from ancient times, right? Joseph the dreamer in the book of Genesis, the father, the, the legal father of Jesus is a dreamer as well. And here's from the Lord in dreams. Good. Something else that you notice. They tied it back to the, the house of Judah. To the, so back to the, the, back to the genealogy. Back to the genealogy. Good. Excellent. Anything else that you observe? Think about the non-Jews in the genealogy and in this narrative. So who are the non-Jews in the genealogy and in this narrative we just read? In the genealogy, it was women. Mm -hmm. The women? Yeah. Good. And it was actually women that did good. Right. Absolutely. So even though they were outside of the Hebrew fold, they were considered righteous women because of their association, right? And, and they did righteous things. Um, who are the non-Jews in the story we just read? The Magi. The Magi, right. Where did they come from? It says the East. All right, so now let's look at your map. So if you look on your map, the big part of the map shows Jerusalem, right? See Jerusalem and Bethlehem circled right in the center? Bethlehem is about eight miles or so, six to eight miles from Jerusalem. So they're essentially, uh, Bethlehem is a suburb of Jerusalem, okay? Um, and if you look up on that same map, go north, what do you see? It's underlined. Nazareth. Nazareth. That's a fur piece, all right? Um, that may have taken them uh, 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 about eight to ten days to walk from there to there, Okay. Um, um, it is barren. Um, it is a little more green at the north up there. And as you come south um, and go down and back up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was a fertile plateau, but in between uh, was not as, quite as fertile. Let's just say that. Um, but it would have been about an eight to ten day journey between these two cities. Now, what we find out in the narrative is that the Magi and wise men is not a good narrative, not a good translation. It's magi. We leave it alone as to what's actually there. Um, and so if you look over to the smaller map B, over to the left-hand side on your map, you see that? And you see the circle around Alexandria and Jerusalem. And if you look just to the right of that, you see this word Parthia. Do you see that underlined? That's in 
um, what is, uh, what became that northern part is where Iran and Iraq are, okay? Uh, the Kurdish parts of modern day Iraq over to Iran. <clears throat> the word, yes? Why, why is man is not a Because it doesn't fully explain what magi were, which I'm about to tell you what they were. And that's okay. No, you're good. It's an excellent question. Excellent question. Uh, wise men just doesn't cover it. It's just a, a, a weak, that's a very weak translation. Um, magi are Zoroastrian priests um, out of Iran or Iraq. <clears throat> Remember the Babylonian captivity of the southern tribes? What became known as Judah in about 580 BC? <coughs> the southern tribes of the people called Israel were taken into captivity into Babylon, which is in southern Iraq, modern day southern Iraq. They were there for some 75 years. The majority of them stayed there. A minority of about 25% of the Jews released by Cyrus came back to Israel. Um, the largest Jewish populations at this time were not in Israel. The largest Jewish populations were in Babylon and in Egypt. There was some sharing of information, shall we say, between the Babylonian culture and Judaism. There is a religion known as Zoroastrianism, which is still a modern religion. It is one of the few monotheistic religions around, although I would call them dualist rather than monotheistic. <clears throat> they share some moral base with Judaism. Uh, some will argue Zoroastrianism is older than Judaism. That's not true. Um, Judaism, its roots predate Zoroastrianism. There again is some shared learning. Think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were bright young men, uh, Israelite young men, who were taken captive from, again, Judea. They were brought into Babylon. They were educated. They were educated in the ways of Babylonian astrology and magic and all of the learning, the philosophical learning that was a part of the Babylonian uh, educational system. Okay? The Jews also brought their learning and understanding. And so there was some sharing going on there. We know that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rejected certain parts of Babylonian teaching. They rejected polytheism. They rejected multiple gods. They, they only worshipped the creator God, Yahweh, and they kept firm to that conviction. And so it is not inconceivable that the learned people left in Babylon who were Gentiles, who were non-Jewish, non-Israelite, knew much of Jewish culture and learning. They would have, again, been an exchange there, correct? These guys, the magi, from which we get the word mage or magic, are people who are highly educated and who were primarily scientist astrologers. They looked at the heavens. 
to get an idea of what they believed was going on in the world. It was common at this time for every Middle Eastern kingdom to have astrologers in the court. This was a job. People would look at the heavens to see what the gods, the deities, were going to do in the earth and how they should prepare themselves as royal rulers and so forth and so on. The Bible forbids, Hebrew scriptures forbid astrology. Why? Because humans begin to worship the things we observe if we're not careful. Astrology can become an addiction. People will begin to monitor their lives by these things. Uh, and in reality, God says there's only one God, and that would be me. But in this period of time when Jesus was born, astrology was a common form of information for all royal households, including Herod's, including the quote-unquote Jewish king of the day. So when the Magi, who were, again, highly educated and were the ones always kind of looking, saw a comet, and we know that there was a comet in this period of time, it's documented, that appeared at this particular time about 4 B.C., 5 B.C., if you will, in that period of time, then it appeared, and they noticed it as a change, the Magi. They noted it, and they interpreted it, to mean that there was a new king in Israel. Again, think about the exchange of knowledge. They interpreted that sign to mean there was a new king in Israel. Now, naturally, they assumed that Herod must have had a new son. This is Herod the Great. This man was well known in the region. He was a great builder and a great thinker, but also an oppressive SOB. Right, he killed a lot of folks, including all of his rivals. <laughs> so the Magi interpret this as, oh, Herod, because he's getting old, must have had a son, and now there's going to be a new king in Israel. Now, Herod freaks out. His folks also see this comet, and they go, Herod ain't had no new children. Who has been born? Who is this rival? Herod is very paranoid. Yes. When they see the, the they, they assume that a baby's being born. Is this that's a new, new king has been born in Israel. So that's what a comet means? Well, this particular, this this okay. that's how they're interpreting it. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Don't get into it yourself. You see a comet, there ain't no new king. That's just astrology, all right? I'm telling you what this group of people believed at that time, all right? It's superstition. But let me just say, God uses the stuff that people knew to reveal himself. He will take what is common and use it to teach about himself. Okay, so everybody's looking at the heavens. All the royal courts are using diviners and astrologers to say, what do I do next? Our political system looks at poles. That's our modern divination. <laughs> they look at it stars. Okay? That would be the comparison. 
Again, so Herod gets freaked out. Especially when you see an entourage, and it wasn't three wise men, by the way. We don't know how many there were. There could have been 30 of them. This would have been a large entourage, weighted down with camel keepers, camels, servants, the wise men themselves who would have been quite wealthy because they were in a position in court Again, where they were viewed in, in high regard. You come over the crest toward Jerusalem, everybody's going to notice. <laughs> you couldn't miss this group. They wouldn't have hidden. Okay? Foreign and weighted down and wealthy. Can't miss that. Okay? They've come to trade. They've come to talk to Herod, but they've also brought trade goods. It's nowhere in scripture because there's three gifts. That's the way many, 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 many years later, um, it just became a great way to tell a story. Yes. But um, it's not actually in scripture as we just read. Do you see three wise men? No. They don't say. I like the New Living Translation. Right. Because it's plain, but. Every time you talk, you say stuff like, well, that's not right. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, wow. So, you know, what, what translation should I really read? You can do any of them, but here's What's the thing. What's the best one, though, guys? Okay, for, for, okay, for Bible study. Yes, for Bible study. I would stick with anything from what I call New International Version over to interlinear. So that includes New International, uh, Holman Christian Standard, uh, uh, New American Standard, uh, New Revised, uh, King, New King James, uh, ESV, English Standard, um, inter, any of the interlinears. I would stick on that side of the world. Okay. Okay. New Living is great, but it's not a great Bible, especially in the New Testament. It's not a great Bible study Bible. It's a good reading Bible. Which is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's an accurate translation for what it is. It's just it doesn't have a lot of detail. And when you're doing serious Bible study, you got to stick on the other side. That's the reason I never read anything in one translation. And I have another question. Sure. You say Yahweh Y A W A T A, but then when I see Y H W H, what is the difference? Same thing. It's just without the vowels. So they call that one Yahuwah. You can say you can do either one Yahuwah Yahweh. Either one is fine. We don't know what how it was pronounced because that's lost to tradition, because it's never it's not pronounced anymore. When you're like in our Hebrew class on Monday night, when we get to the Yud Hey Vav Hey, the sacred name of God, the personal name of God, we just say Hashem, the name, because and you'll hear other people read it as Adonai, Lord, that's fine. So because we don't know how it's pronounced, so we substitute in out of respect for the high holy name of God. The word Hashem, which just means the name. But you'll hear me say Yahweh, because that's how I learned it. Yahweh is great, too. Okay? Because, um, again, we don't know how the vowels were pronounced. The Magi show up, and again, I say leave it alone. That's what it says in the text. Let's leave it alone. It says Magi. Okay? It's like when we were doing the genealogy and we found out that people corrected it. Just leave it alone. It, what's there is there. Don't try to fix it. Sometimes translators try to fix stuff. Just, just leave it alone. 
Okay. So in the Greek, it says magi, which is a borrowed word from Iranian, which means these uh, Zoroastrian priest dudes. Houston, believe it or not, is one of the largest Zoroastrian communities outside of northern India in existence. They're, they're refugees from North India and from Iran. Because Zoroastrianism, again, comes out of the Persian Empire, which, again, we know that the Jews had an influence in there. And you'll find, if you look at the Zoroastrian religion, you'll see, oh, that sounds awfully familiar. Because there was some bleed over from the Jewish learning. So anyway, the Magi show up. They scare the dickens out of Herod. We've come to worship the new king. Where's the new king, Herod? Have you had a son? And he goes, ah! <laughs> because again, he's killed off all his rivals. He's really a paranoid dude. So he brings in all of his wise men, all of his learned folks, the scribes, the Sadducees. Now let's be clear. He has also killed off all the religious elites and replaced them with his own puppets. So the people that are advising him are people that would speak favorably, let's just say. Okay? Yes, ma'am. And they are. <laughs> and they are, um, they're learned, and they know their stuff, so they tell him rightly, they quote from the book of Micah, yes, Bethlehem is where the Messiah is to be born. And, of course, Herod immediately says, well, let's just go check this dude out. Which is why, again, Matthew has given us this royal lineage. Jesus is the actual royal line. He's in the actual royal lineage. Herod is not. Herod is a puppet of the Greek legacy, the Ptolemies, that come out of the Grecian, the, the Hellenistic Jewish culture. Okay? He's not a part of the royal line. The Magi are told in a dream, and again, they're very much in tune with the supernatural, if you will. And again, God can God will use whoever's listening to get his stuff done. These guys were tuned up. They received a dream. They said, we're headed home another way. So they go back to Bethlehem. They find out and the way that the scripture reads, it's very interesting. Again, in the Greek, you could either interpret it that the star moved or it moved while they were walking. In other words, like if you're driving in a car and the moon's beside you, it looks like the moon's moving with you. Yeah. Okay, so the, the Greek can be read either direction, and that's cool. It's very unlikely that the star itself moved, but rather through their wisdom and understanding, as they moved, they, they reckoned that the star was pointing toward Jerusalem and Bethlehem, which again are about eight miles apart. And if you've looked at a comet, if you were alive when Haley's Comet was around and you looked up and you saw this smear in the sky, right? It, it's not, you can't observe it moving. It's too, it's too far away. But if you're moving, it looks like it's moving. And again, because of their ability to, in mathematics and in understanding, we're able to say, okay, it looks like this star is pointing in this direction. So that's where we're headed. So that's where they go. So he's not in Jerusalem, so Bethlehem's the next likely place because that's the hometown of David. They would have known that this is the hometown of the royal progenitor, David. So they start looking. 
Oh yeah, trust me, everybody would have heard about <laughs> the woman screaming in the cave in the back of the hotel, okay? <laughs> All right. Uh, Ooh, somebody gave birth, you know. So, uh, <laughs> think small town, okay? It's not a big city. Yes, sir? Maybe the spirit led them more than they realized. Absolutely, more than they realized, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. God God had his hand in all of this all along the way, but that's not how it's recorded in the text. So I'm just going to what's there. But absolutely, the spirit and hand of God is all over this. That's what I'm saying. God is using what was available to reveal himself in all of this. It's interesting that the pagans and the poor know the truth. The religiously elite and educated and the political leaders don't. The people who should have known don't know. And the people who should not have known do know. God always uses the least likely. Because generally they don't have the arrogance that the learned do. It's not that God doesn't use the learned. The Apostle Paul is a perfect example of someone who is highly educated that God uses to essentially create the system that becomes Christianity. But he had to be knocked off his horse first. He had to be humbled. Had Herod been humble, had his wise men been humble, his scribes, his scholars, been humble, they too would have understood. But they weren't. They were arrogant and full of fear. Arrogance and fear will always lead you in the wrong way. Yeah. Always, always. But truthful seeking and humility will always lead you to the right place. Now, honest seeking and humility will always lead you to the right place. That's the reason you should always say there's always more to learn. There's always more to know. You never have it all. You never have it sewed up. There's always more, right? Like I challenge myself literally every day. I, I listen to a Hebrew podcast every morning <laughs> on my way into work that challenges me to the nth degree. I have to sometimes listen to it two or three times. I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> um, you know, there's n you never know everything. So you're always learning. Had, again, Herod and his guys been willing to hear and learn, they too could have come to the truth. But they didn't. They were really more afraid of their power structure and they were arrogant. So again, the Magi show up, they, get, they go and see Joseph and Mary and Jesus. By this time, Jesus is older. He's you know, somewhere south of two, because we find out next week, you know, he, Herod goes out to kill them all. But we know he's a, he's, a, he's a toddler probably at this stage, living in a house, not in the, not in the hotel stables. In the hotel garage would be, would be the equivalent. <laughs> Basically, Jesus was born in the garage where they kept the livestock. <laughs> um, it wouldn't have been this beautiful little nativity set. But most likely a cave. Artistic interpretation in European context. Yeah. It's why is Jesus white? It's the same thing. Inter inter artistic interpretation in the dominant context. I mean, it's just like the image of the cross. Every time I think about that, I'm like, nah, the cross wasn't like what you see. That's right. They'd be lined up down the side of the road. Yeah, there was the hill Golgotha, and he was probably up on it. 
Not maybe not on top of it, but up on the side, because there would have been a whole slew of people. Just these three were clumped together and butt naked. Ain't no little cloth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Artistic. Exactly. <laughs> and so there's the three wise men in following that same category. They're, you know, there's the magi. There's these folks coming from the east, from Iran, Iraq, somewhere over in that area, who knew about all of this going on. They could interpret the signs of the stars. God used that to get his purposes done. And again, Matthew is putting a scope on the people outside of the covenant that God still uses and loves. And you remember in this day, in this day, the Jews really believed that they were they were all there was as far as you know God spoke to them. And they were the, the frozen chosen. <laughs> and nobody else was a part of this. But Matthew comes on the scene, and indeed Jesus comes on the scene to say, God loves everybody. And he has salvation for everyone available. If you're looking. But now this done and beforehand was written beforehand. It was prophesied back and now they're interpreted. It has to follow with the way it was prophesied. There weren't wise men interpret uh, prophesied per se. Right. It just says the wealth of the East will come to me, uh, which is very general. There is no prophecy of wise men coming to Bethlehem. Bethlehem itself is prophesied in the yeah, book of Micah. And the birth. The birth was prophesied to happen that the, that the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one, we talked about that last week, remember, or two weeks ago, would be born in Bethlehem. Okay. Yeah. But notice, they even know that, but they still don't, they see it as a rival rather than a fulfillment. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. the, the, the Jewish elite see it that way. The Sadducees, which were puppets of Herod, and Herod's court don't view this biblical prophecy as anything particularly special other than to say, this is a rival. Let me go and worship him too and slit his throat in the process. And his parents. And your little dog Toto. You know. Uh, everybody. <laughs> so, again, the Magi are warned in a dream to get out of Dodge. So they go, they go and do their homage. Absolutely. They realize once they get here, this is the fulfilled this is the prophesied king, uh, and they give him these gifts, of, which are common gifts. In other words, they probably had two or three camels full of this stuff because they were trading this. This was a spice route that went from through Iran, Iraq, over down through Syria, and into Israel, and this was a common route. They clearly went back another way. They probably went up through Damascus to, to miss Herod and all of his folks. <laughs> Because um, I'm sure by this time, the Magi were on the short list <laughs> as well. Ooh, they prophesied. We don't want this spread around. So they got out of Dodge trying to miss Herod's men. So they came in, went to, went to Bethlehem, uh, and essentially supplied Joseph and Mary with enough material, money, and tradable goods to get them to Egypt. Uh, there was a well-known highway between Jerusalem up to the coast and over to uh, the northern part of Egypt. They probably did not go that way. There was a more southern route through what's called known Hebron that they probably took, again, to miss the way less traveled to get to um, the Nile. Again, there were 
large Jewish populations in Egypt. There's one city, Alexandria, that had over a million Jews in it. We don't know where exactly Jesus and his family ended up, but there were enough Jews in that area to hide for a period of time. There was no extradition treaty between Egypt and Israel, so Herod couldn't come and extradite them anyway, even if he knew they left. The Egyptians were not going to give him up. Herod dies really just about a year later, 4 BC, or a few months later. He doesn't live much longer. His son, his eldest son, is also not a nice person. 8 AD, 6 to 8 AD, he doesn't live very long either. Then the second son comes in line, and he's a much calmer human. It is under that rule that Jesus and his family come back and go to Nazareth, go back home. Jesus is probably around four or five years old-ish in that region. Okay? But again, they were well taken care of in this area of Egypt. Plenty of Jews, plenty of families to hide them and to... They were refugees. They were political refugees. So then that... No, I'm good. Then that boils down to... I want, us, I want you to think on this. If that's true, which it is, we just see that it is, he's a political refugee, how does that inform our treatment of political refugees today? If our Savior is a refugee, how does that inform our decision-making when it comes to refugees today? I mean, and the Bible tells us that he, we're supposed to welcome strangers because he was a stranger. That's right. And so what should happen is that we should be welcoming them and trying to help them get settled and get started again. That's what's supposed to happen. Right. Love conquers a multitude of sins, and love conquers a lot of grievance. Did they look at this literally as being political refugees or people that just heard this country is better and you know, as opposed to like now, some of these people from other countries are not necessarily defined as political refugees because they just want to come to a land Sure, our State Department has quotas for every group, for every area. I know this for a fact because I used to do visas for the Houston Grand Opera, and it's gotten much stricter since then. It was nearly impossible to get somebody here then, 20 years ago. It's now virtually impossible. The vetting process is unbelievable. Um, that's right. They cannot. Matter of fact, I work again with Interfaith Ministries. Be assured, they're one of the uh, agencies that is that are used and are sanctioned by the State Department is for refugee resettlement. Um, the vetting process begins in home country. It takes two or three years to even get here through the visa process overseas. They're not just like opening the floodgates and people are just waltzing in like some people would have you believe. The vetting process is quite extensive. The paperwork is quite extensive. You have to be interviewed at the embassies, and your family is vetted, your workplace is vetted. Now, does that make, make sure 100% that nobody slips in that doesn't have another agenda? No, but does it limit it extremely? You bet. 
There are more, more, again, remember, there are more domestic terrorists, homegrown folks, than there are people coming in doing anything. One thing about man, you can't, you can't vet the home. That's right. I mean, they try to. They really do. They really do try to get down to some motivations, and they look for key belief systems that would be an indicator. Again, it is more likely that you have a homegrown person that's a problem than you do for someone who's gone through this vetting process. Um, and we see that over and over. Um, uh, disenfranchisement, uh, people that are, are, are upset by what was promised and didn't pan out for them and their family, um, rather than people who are coming here as political refugees. Honestly, if we can take every baby out of Aleppo, we should. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if it be, <laughs> the, the people are suffering unimaginably in yes. Syria. Yes. They're squeezed from both sides. Yes. Used to be Syria had one of the highest Christian populations yeah. in the world. Yeah. Most of them are here. Most of the Syrian Orthodox are here. I live in California, I live in Michigan, some here. Uh, we have a fair number of Syrian Christians here, Syrian Orthodox Christians here, because of the oil industry. It, it doesn't mean that you're stupid, but it does mean that you don't out of hand dismiss people who are political refugees. The majority of people coming out of the Middle East are political refugees. The majority of people coming out of El Salvador and Honduras are political and ideological refugees. I've done mission work in Costa Rica for many years. And the reality is people in Honduras and people in El Salvador, which are essentially failed states, if your child, if you live in a village and you don't have money and your child becomes 12 or 13, the gangs, which drive around in black suburbans, will come pick up your children if you don't have money to pay them off. So when they send their children by the thousands here, unattended to some distant relative living in Arizona or Texas, they're doing it out of desperation. Yeah. Nobody does that yeah. just because. Yeah. Okay. They would rather have them go home, trust me. But the, the, the choice between the gangs picking them up for espionage and interrogation and God knows what else, especially the girls, risking them coming north on a train to some relatives They'll do that. Yeah. We've kind of forgotten about the refugee crisis on the border, but it still is happening. Now, certainly not in the droves that it was, but it's certainly still. We receive thousands of unattended minors every year on the Texas border. And many of them are put into uh, halfway homes that NGOs have put into place. This is an area where the Church of Jesus Christ can't turn a blind eye. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we have some responsibility to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Because if we don't want some other set of ideologies taking them over, right. we need yeah. to be the ideology right. standing there going, Jesus loves you. That's right. And let me show you that Jesus loves you. It's not the government's responsibility at the end of the day. It's the church's. That's my own little personal thing. If the church took care of this instead of building a bunch of buildings, we would have right. we would have what we seek when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ being the dominant force in our culture. But other ideologies get them first, you know, and they're angry. 
They're upset. Wouldn't you be? The only solution to that, as trite as it sounds, is the love of Jesus. And how are they going to know the love of Jesus unless somebody, not just tells them, but demonstrates it. The, the, the solution to our political issues has to do with the love of Jesus. And not excluding folks just because they have a different theology than us. Or a different ideology than us. They're not evil. Now they can give themselves over if there are things not in place to help them make that transition. There, there's a lot of work for the church yet to do. And it, this Genesis is out of this story, I believe, in the Gospel of Matthew. Where Matthew intentionally puts in people that are not Jewish in the story of Jesus to say, God can use the people that you think least likely. That's really important to understand. And we'll see it over and over in this gospel, the least, the last, and the lost, become the dominant movers and shakers in the good news of Jesus. Look at the disciples. Good Lord. A bunch of half-literate fishermen, a tax collector, an IRS auditor. <laughs> Think about that. Who's one of the most hated people in the world? Okay. Um, someone who split his loyalties between Judaism, the Jewish ideals, and the Roman state. He was a sympathizer, let's just say that. It, it, there's a lot to, to, to think through and parse out in this text. So let's finish up. So we talked a little bit about the star of Bethlehem. Okay, so again, why Egypt? Egypt, uh, because again of the Jewish population. And then secondly, to retread the story of the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. The reason that Matthew pulls on this story out of um, Hosea, which is this is quoted out of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and really the first 11 verses of Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, uh, predict that the Messiah should come out of Egypt. And this fulfills that prophetic word. That, again, they flee as refugees, as political refugees. They get helped out by the Jewish community that is there. After the second Herod comes into power, who's a little more lenient, more human, <laughs> they come back home, and Matthew interprets this as a fulfillment of the Hosea text, which says, out of Egypt I will call my son. And, by the way, Matthew, we know from use of this, reads Hebrew. The dominant Bible of this time was in Greek, what's known as the Septuagint. Most Jews are reading a Greek translation of the Bible at this point, of the Old Testament. It becomes known as, the well, what I call the First Testament, right? The Hebrew Scriptures. But Matthew is reading the Hebrew, because in the Hebrew it is singular, has called my son. In the Greek, when the Greek trans translation comes around, it says, I will call my sons, plural. So from this very little text here, we realize that Matthew is actually reading the Hebrew text and translating it in the Greek himself. So again, he's a tax collector. He has some education. He is an example of a learned person who has the humility for God to use. So again, why Egypt? A, there was Jewish population on a practical level. Two, it is also about Jesus becoming the second Moses. The second Moses who leads, who basically does the exodus in reverse. 
He alone comes back out of Egypt to rescue his people from their slavery and bondage that is now associated with Rome and their underlings, which are these Jewish tetrarchs, the Herods. It's essentially that Matthew casts Herod as Pharaoh. It's interesting. Yes, sir. No, because by this time there was a significant Jewish population in Israel, in Egypt. Yeah, but the, the Egypt of of uh, fourteen hundred BC is not the Egypt of of four BC. It's a totally different. This is post Pharaohs. Romans ruled this area. There were no pharaohs. Was that during the time he said Herod's second son was was it the third son that was in charge? Yeah, the second son was in charge. But even during the time of Herod the Great, Herod the First, Egypt had already fallen to the Romans. So there, there was already Roman rule in Egypt. There were no more pharaohs. Once Cleopatra had killed herself, that pretty much destabilized what remained of the old pharaohic governments. Because there both of it was a bunch of city-states that was ruled by a pharaoh, if you will. But after that fell, after Cleopatra, it was kind of fruit basket turnover. And the Romans came in and established order. They took they, they came in in that, that power vacuum. By then, by the time of Jesus, the Romans ruled northern Egypt. And the Romans had a very simple rule, Pax Romana. Live and let live. The peace of Rome was live and let live unless your belief system butts up against ours. We're going to let you be who you are. The Jews in Alexandria, for instance, pretty much had self-rule. Similar to what they had in Jerusalem. They had some governance. They could live by their own laws and rules. And again, because there was no extradition treaty between Israel and Egypt, even if Herod knew that Jesus left, he couldn't have gotten him anyhow. It was a safe place. It was the exodus in reverse, in a sense. Matthew cast Herod as the evil Pharaoh, trying to kill off all of his rivals. And Jesus flees to Egypt, the land of mystery and magic and comes back out the triumphant ruler, if you will. Because he gets cast now by Matthew as he's the hero, remember? He's the hero that comes back out. So he's retreading. Jesus is retreading the Exodus story. He's casting Jesus as the new Moses. as the one who's going to lead his people. He's going to save his people. Remember, he says, and his name shall be called Jesus, who will save his people. Or restore his people. There's another way to translate his name, Yeshua. So, so they left. You said Jesus was about two when they left. Yeah, somewhere around that. So when they come back, how old? So when he's about four or five, just a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To to close, and then I'll answer some questions. But to close my portion of this, don't let what I'm telling you upset your world. Just because it was tradition. It does not mean it's scriptural. That's right. All right? I had to learn it too. Tradition often glosses over what's actually in the text. And why just showing you what's just actually there? I'm not giving you anything that's not there. 
And I'm giving you the history. Yes. That's it. Nurse and Claude. Sorry. You know? That was dumb. I keep saying Wiseman. I keep wanting to see three Wiseman. Right. But it's not there. So if I were to give you a Bible trivia quiz and you they say, how many Wiseman were there? You say, I don't know. Yeah. That's the correct answer. How many gifts were there? Three. How many wise men? Quite a few. <laughs> Look, it's plural. It says magi. So it could have been two or it could have been 50. But we just know more than one. Not mage, but magi. And again, that's a borrowed word from the Iranian from which we get the word magic or mage. You know, and something else too, you know, we're, we're we grew up saying that they, the wise men found the baby land in the But in the Marvel universe, when they visited him, he said, Oh, he's yeah. a house. And two, that we don't know how long it took for them to get to where Jesus was, so we really don't know how old he was. We know he was less than two because less of the reading from next week. It probably took about a month or so to move from where they were in either Iran or Iraq, Parthia, over down through uh, Syria, down to Jerusalem. See, remember, Canaan, Canaan, is about the size of Rhode Island. It ain't Texas. <laughs> we're literally talking about the size of Rhode Island, this little area where all this is happening. Right? <laughs> so it didn't take, even on foot, it didn't take that long. Yeah. Go from point A to point B, especially if you had a donkey or you had a camel, right? You could get to places in a few days. So the, the trip, if you had a good caravan, well-watered, well-provisioned, take you about a month to go across and come down. So the minute they saw the star, it was another four weeks, three, four weeks to get down to where they were going. And this was a well-monitored spice route. It was a highway. Yes. You know, Pastor Kim, you talk about that. I was thinking about my, my childhood about the song, We Three Kings of Warrior. Sure. Why did we learn all that together? I'm like, you know, because, you know, you think about it, bringing gifts to frankincense, myrrh, and whatever. I'm like, go. And you're like, okay, so this is not real. And I'm like. Artistic interpretation. But for the sake of moving, like we say, the earth is constantly moving, as you know. As you know. Right. So the star was, when they, it probably had made it over to where the baby was by right. the time they got there, because the earth was steadily moving. And, and the, the thing is moving, but, it, but it's so slow compared to our perspective against yeah. physics. You know, okay, we got the angle going on here. And for us, it appears that it's moving like we, can, we can't tell it's moving. But the earth is moving, and we're moving on it, so it appears to move. Yeah. And that's cool. The point is that the thing appeared. Yeah, and the it, moment it, that it, it appeared, it. then that's when the Magi go, whoa! Something's happening over in Israel because of all these documents, and this is what we believe. and So, so they've parsed it out, but this is what this indicates, and say, well, we better get on over there, figure out what's going on. So I have a question. Sure. So, so really what... The, they actually saw the star. Yes. Jesus had already been born. Right, exactly. So he had been born possibly over a year, more than a year right. old when, when they Correct. actually saw the star. Correct. Okay. Yeah, see, there's no star at Bethlehem. 
when he is when he is born. I know, messing y'all up big time. <laughs> Notice the text. Notice the text. When the star appears, they leave. That's right. So, so he had already been born. Right. And we know he was a little over a year old at least because of Herod's dictate. So I guess that's why it's so, the ignorance and bliss. Amen. <laughs> so, right, so did Herod know who he was looking for? Did he know he was looking for uh, Joseph and Mary and a baby? Probably by then. By then they knew. But but the thing is, they didn't know until the Magi showed up. Now, again, his folks would have also seen this. And they may have interpreted it differently. But these foreigners would have been viewed as some a group imbued with knowledge. To be listened. They were allowed into the courtroom of Herod. They were court officials. These were respected men. Learned. And so, yeah, Herod's going to let them in. And when they hear the interpretation of who they viewed to be, you know, folks who really had it going on with his interpretation of astrology, then they freaked out. Again, his folks had seen it, but they probably clearly interpreted it differently because, remember, they were yes men for the king. Oh, there's no rival. It's all good. It's all good. Exactly. So when these guys show up and actually verify there's something outside of it, remember the magicians in, in Egypt yeah. and how they were yes men? So are the scribes who are talking to Herod. Oh, no, that's fine. Look, we've got better wisdom. Here, let me show you what this really means. You know. So it's again sort of Egypt in reverse. Herod cast his pharaoh. The scribes are the magicians. And it's actually the people who shouldn't have known who know. God can use whoever he wants to. But people that are, again, in spirit and in truth, people who are honestly seeking the truth and are humble, God will use. The arrogant and the fearful, no. Yes, ma'am. That's what that just goes to say. Because God says you must be as a child to believe. That's it. And political people are not Learned people are not as children. They're not going to see it. It's hard for them to understand. Because they must dissect it. They must understand it. They must come to them how they feel about things. But a child takes it just as it is. Now, again, this is not a condemnation of learning. No, no, no. Yeah. It's how one views learning. Because, again, Matthew's learned, Paul is learned. But you're absolutely right. It's that humility and openness that a child has, not closed and arrogant. If you see a person who's closed and arrogant, run thou far away. (laughs) Don't follow them. And we have to guard against ourselves that we don't become that. What's the difference between a Pharisee and a new believer? About two years. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's let's close in prayer. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. Join us next week when we'll be covering the second half of Matthew chapter 2 and close out the birth narrative. 
as we get ready to dive into the ministry of Jesus Christ. May God bless you, and may you know that you are loved indeed by God Himself.